Well, hello to everybody out there in podcast land. You are listening to Cinematic Horizons, a Steven Spielberg fan cast. I'm your host, Brandon Davis, and I am joined once again by my co-host, Mr. Craig McFarland. How's it going, Craig? Great. We're talking about another good Spielberg hit from the 80s now, so I'm excited about this one. We are talking about, I think, I mean, it's going to be hard as we go down, but I think my... the. I think my personal favorite of all the ones that we're going to talk about, and that is E.T., the extraterrestrial from 1982. Um, We talked about this on Front Row Classics about a year ago, uh, actually probably around a year ago, exactly this month. And just revisiting it again last year, um, I think, restoked my love for the movie. But watching it again this time, it uh, it just sort of reaffirmed everything. This, to me, is one of the great hallmarks of not just Spielberg's work, but movies in general, I think. And it just, it holds a special place in my heart. And so I just, uh, before we get into the meat of it, just want to get your first impressions and your initial thoughts. Well, it's been so long since I saw this movie. I mean, it's been decades since I've seen E.T. and sat down for it. I know that uh, with it being the 40th anniversary last year, there were so many additional screenings. And of course, you covered it on your show and everything else. But for whatever reason, I just have it really revisited it a lot like um, many of the other Spielberg movies we're going to end up talking about. But I enjoyed being able to look at it through a fresh set of eyes. And also uh, as a dad of a son who's about Elliot's age right now. And Mm -hmm. so it was cool to see it from that aspect too, to kind of see like the interaction that the kids have. And the fact that this really helped like ignite that whole drive in the 80s of like kids being the protagonist and kids being the main drive and the heroes of the story and I mean you think about so many films that would come after this not uh, the least of which which is Goonies and like that you get like this kind of ragtag group of kids on bikes that can take out a federal agency right and be able to get this alien home and so it's really cool I mean I I really enjoyed it uh, quite a bit and it's funny because I had remembered the score, but uh, we're going to talk about the score, I'm sure, yeah. because you mentioned that it's your favorite yeah. of the John Williams scores. And I was like, well, really, that's an interesting choice for favorite John Williams score. And so I listened to the music a lot more, I think, when I was watching it this time because of you. And uh, certainly the the main theme of that is just so whimsical and mysterious, but also like just adventurous. It's this is like pure adventure um, Spielberg. And I like that because it's kind of coming off of Raiders going into more Indiana Jones in the near future and being able to see like the wonder come out in Spielberg is really cool. I watched an interview that he did last year for the 40th anniversary. And he said that I think a lot of people assume that Close Encounters is his most personal movie because he wrote that movie. But he said, E.T. is my most personal movie. He said, I put more of myself into that movie than anything. And of course, we can, we'll talk about some of the reasons why later. But he also said what I found interesting and talking with you, this will be interesting. He said that he really sort of set out to make his own personal Disney film Mm. is what he said. And he said that he didn't think this movie was going to be commercial when it came out and was going to make money because he said that um, because Disney movies weren't doing well in the early eighties. So he said, I thought this was just going to be a, you know, sort of personal thing for me. Cause he said he never considered ET to be a sci-fi mm-hmm. film. 
he said it was a you know a fantasy about you know a broken family and how they get put back together again and so it, when you watch it from that aspect it's so interesting and of course uh it's also i think turning close encounters on its head because at the end of close encounters you've got richard dreyfus going up and sort of being the outside visitor into you know whatever world he goes into but this is when um you do the inverse and you leave an alien here on earth with all of us mm-hmm. absolutely and i was just looking up on imdb uh hopefully you didn't hear me clicking away on my computer on the recording but i uh was just looking up because i was thinking about like uh, a Disney movie that would come shortly after that flight of the navigator uh, comes out in 1984. And it is still one of those that kind of follows that, like really the only people that can connect with these aliens or be able to connect with this kind of foreign object are kids. And so uh, something about like the innocence of children, but it's interesting that he said that it was supposed to be like his Disney movie. I mean, it really does have this, uh, again it's it's kind of like the exploration of like trying to figure out what et his interactions are going to be with the kids and and particularly with elliot especially when he starts to really feel what et's feeling mm-hmm. and um that's all driven by this kind of youthful wonder and i think that that's really uh that that's really a great way to frame it is but I would say that it's very much, I mean, not to disagree with uh, Mr. Spielberg, but it's definitely a sci-fi movie yeah. like through and through. And it's interesting because it really kind of starts us off where uh, close encounters ends. And the fact that we see the ship right away and like, we see uh, ET run into the forest. And um, I want to have that discussion like later about like, what's the reaction of people? Is it like, the close encounters reaction that they get of the whole town kind of like gathering, trying to figure out what this ship is, or is it the government agency coming in immediately? Like it is an ET, Mm -hmm. you know what that is too, but um, super, just super interesting. Well, and you mentioned that, you know, the reactions of the kids. And I think Spielberg really took the time when you watch this movie, that it's really told from a kid's point of view. Mm -hmm. And it really is. I'm like, except for the mother played by Dee Wallace, you don't see another face of an adult in the movie until the government agency people come in in the third act. So, and really, then you only get the the one uh, who is Peter the main. Yeah, part, yeah, absolutely. And so he's really the only person that you kind of can sort of have this connection to at all. That's an adult, other than the mother. And the mother, I mean, like you know, going through a uh, divorce myself, like you can really see a lot of the character that Spielberg was able to put into her. I felt a lot like more um, empathy for her and what she's going through. And like that horrible scene where she can't find Elliot and she's talking to the police and he, they're like, well, is there anything traumatic that might've been happening? And she mentions the separation and like that kind of pulled at my heartstrings just because it's like, here she is not thinking that she's done. Like she's, She's clearly trying to be there for her child, mm-hmm. but also just based on actions that may not necessarily have much to do with her um, directly. There's this circumstance where uh, maybe that has affected her kid and now Elliot's off like running away or whatever. It's just uh, that that scene kind of hit me a little bit. And then also the scene around the, the table where they're talking about dad being in Mexico, mm-hmm. that also like these kind of you know, we talked about it when we first started this podcast that one of the main themes that Spielberg talked about in Fablemans is the divorce of his parents. And that was such a pivotal scene in that and how that would guide some of his work moving forward. And it also allows his characters to be so much more human, I feel like. Yeah. Because 
this movie doesn't work as well if there's not that little bit of character that's developed with the kids prior to really the interaction with the alien because you have to have the human element to make the extraterrestrial extraterrestrial extraordinary oh yeah so i i think that the way that it's written is really really great and i Thinking back, I, I, I re-listened to our, I usually never re-listen to classics episodes, but I re-listened to the one that we did a year ago and we, um, we praised, you know, I think all three of these child actors are exceptional in this movie. And I think, you know, um, all three of them, it's not your run of the mill child performances. Cause I think all three of them, it all feels so spontaneous. Yeah. And I think that it's, you feel like you're watching a real family at times. And I think that that's sort of, the tone that Spielberg set on the set. I think he gave these three kids the freedom to be able to explore all of their emotions and then made them feel safe to, you know, snap out of those real quick and just be kids again. And especially when you watch, you know, there's tons of behind the scenes footage of this movie that you can go and watch. And it's amazing what he does with someone who drew Barrymore, who was so little when this movie was made. And I know she comes from an acting family, but still, um, it, it's really remarkable. She, um, on her talk show, she had a 40th anniversary reunion last year with the rest of the cast. And, uh, D Wallace told her that Drew's probably too young to remember, but Steven had an order on the set that as long as Drew was around on the set, ET had to be alive. So he hired someone who was just responsible for making sure that ET was never inanimate while Drew was on the set. He was always so that when she had to say goodbye to him at the end, she felt like she was really saying goodbye to him Wow! and all that. So he kept the magic. So it, he just kept the magic alive for everybody on the set. And I think you can feel that throughout the whole movie. Yeah. It, the only thing that really didn't work for me was the weird improvised monologue that Drew Barrymore gave about not appreciating striking actors or writers. It was really weird and seemed out of place. (laughs) No, no, really though. Current uh, situations aside, she does a great job in this film and it's, it was cool the the chemistry, especially between her and, uh, and Elliot. I mean, Mm -hmm. you get this brother sister relationship that really comes across very well and almost like, when you hear about uh, pictures where they put kids on set and try to just have them like hang out and be able to make that chemistry work, that's hard. Like that's hard for adult actors to pull off. So for the kids to be able to pull it off is a pretty big feat for sure. And we mentioned Drew, but Henry Thomas who plays Mm -hmm. Elliot um, in this movie is just remarkable. And I mean, it, it doesn't, we're to the point now where child acting has evolved. It's not where it was in the early days of Hollywood where child actors were just grading and he runs, I mean, the gamut of emotions and it never feels, you know, maudlin or anything. He feels like a real kid when you watch this and he doesn't feel like a Hollywood kid. So that whenever, you know, you, he feels the wonder, you feel the wonder, you know, during the, you know, ET's death scene, you feel every moment of it. Yeah. And that, I mean, that was rough to watch. Like you see him, like, especially with the, the way that they did the makeup Mm -hmm. and his eyes with like the, the red under eyelid. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh man, that like tore me up again, because having a son, like that's Elliot's age now. And so like, you just imagine you're losing your friend, but also you're losing your life in the process because you're so interconnected and intertwined Mm -hmm. with one another. And it just like, and then to still like for Elliot to still be like reaching out and saying that he can save ET mm-hmm. as well, even though while 
whatever is killing et at the time is also killing elliot like it's just uh, oh yeah i mean it, it's like you you don't get to that scene though unless you have like the silly interactions that kids would have with an alien in their room yeah. like trying to teach them how to play with action figures uh-huh. and trying to like you know dress them up for halloween and take yeah. them trick-or-treating like that's the type of stuff like that being written in there um allows for the kind of character growth to happen enough that connection to happen enough where it lands an emotional punch when that scene happens totally and everything you know everything feels real and um it's yeah it's just it's just remarkable and what i love is this movie is really sort of a lesson in empathy Mm -hmm. and i mean because the whole relationship between et and elliot is just based in empath and all of that and it's it's remarkable because when you're when you're a kid and you watch it you just feel just the genuine at you know at at arm's length emotion right there but when you're an adult watching it you start to realize all the deeper stuff that's going on and yet you still feel that childlike innocence when you watch it too so there's like three levels when you watch it as an adult and there's hardly any empathy from any of the other adults like i mean it's like they come in and they just do their job there's some that are like you know you can see that they have some kind of curiosity as to what this alien is and they're trying to figure it out but it's so much more uh, prescribed or scientific and it's it's done in a way like when they're calling his death like as well there's no empathy there and it's just it's like you really get the emotional weight coming from the kids in this film mm-hmm. and i think that that is a trademark of spielberg in the 80s and yeah. uh and again it really sets off this environment where we have all these amazing kids protagonist movies which basically shaped our generation Uh like i mean we grew up on all these movies and so you did feel like as kids you had the sense of adventure and that you could go and take on the world Uh and that you didn't just have to leave it to the adults and i mean a lot of that spielberg gave to us through these films absolutely and what what i find so interesting too is you know d wallace is the mom you know i feel like in a lesser movie they would have done you know where you know she 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 doesn't you know at, at first she's not siding with the kids she doesn't believe with but as soon as she knows what's going on and the weight of what's going on she is with her kids supporting them you know 100 percent and uh that, that's what i appreciate too but but yeah there's so many great moments i was listening back and uh our friend lou hare who was on that episode with us um pointed out just how realistic the mother-child relationship was she said especially during the opening scene where they're all sitting in the dining room table eating dinner he called it the penis breath scene mm-hmm. or whatever and he says you know when she is half scolding half laughing he said that's something a real parent you know would always do he said where you're amused by something your kid would say but you know they shouldn't say that and he said that was you know just something so honest that you wouldn't see in a movie of that time so there's mm-hmm. so much honesty going on in this movie and also what i love is Um, when I listened to Spielberg's interview, he said he never wanted it to be, it is a special effects movie, but he said he never wanted it to feel like a special effects movie because everything in it is pretty much practical. And you, you feel like everything that's happening is part of the natural world. in this movie. I wanted to mention that because like, if this was today, ET would have been uh, CGI within an inch of his life. And it just wouldn't have had the same impact as that little, animatronic puppet whatever the heck that thing is uh and it almost feels like it it has a sense like there's a texture to his skin there's a Mm -hmm. so like when he starts to lose color because he's fading because he's dying 
there's an impact there. It's not just like a, a moldable, clearly computer generated thing. And I think it's so cool to see that. I also think like the ships are cool. All of that's cool. It's not quite on the level of, of Close Encounters because I don't think that he was trying to have it be that because in Close Encounters, they're communicating directly, truly with the ship. And whereas here, it's more about communication between Elliot and E.T. Uh-huh. But I think that um, this is also, I mean, to this point, at least, I think this is his prettiest movie in terms of like most beautifully shot, like the oh, the yeah. vistas that he gets here and the bike scenes, like the two bike scenes where they take off uh-huh. are just wonderful. Like they're just so cool. And like they still work today, you know, yeah. and it's all practical stuff. It's not like. Um, you know, you don't have to bring in a bunch of computers to mm-hmm. make this alien run around. You just get him to kind of like, kind of, I don't know, was it like sort of waddle around, I guess is how you would say he moves. And yeah. especially when they're like trick or treating and stuff and he's got the sheet over him and it's just, it works so well because it's practical. And, and what I find interesting too, is just the look of ET because we had, you know, up to this point, you know, aliens had been sort of a, you know, in the fifties and sixties, they were, you know, monsters. There were mm-hmm. no friendly aliens. And then, you know, the day they stood still. Yeah. yeah. And then when we get to the seventies, you know, you have star Wars and close encounters come out in the same year. And, you know, you have the vision of what, you know, the close encounters aliens look like in star Wars, you get these sort of, you know, humanoid, um, you know, quirky looking, you know, aliens or whatever. And in this one, ET is, it's another such original design. And it's funny when you're a kid watching it, when I was a kid, I always assumed E.T. was sort of the kid that got lost and was left alone. But when you watch it now as an adult, you're like, E.T.'s a botanist and he's a yeah. and you know, and, and uh, when you watch him more and you look at the texture of his skin, it's like he's almost like a sage old person, older, you know, older being or whatever. And so uh, that that sort of takes on another message because you've got like a, you know, one generation, you know, connecting with another. And so it takes on another meaning there, too. Yeah. So they're communicating generationally in terms uh-huh. and, and, and just across, <laughs> you know, so many of like uh, Close Encounters was a movie entirely predicated on trying to learn how to communicate mm-hmm. with uh, another kind other than our own. And so much of this film is much of the same. But while clearly E.T. is like the spiritual successor to Close Encounters, I would still think that they have different individual components that make both of them really quite different films oh, yeah. and uh, really great in their own way in terms of like effects on sci-fi and on movie making and everything else that they've they've done oh yeah i mean they're uh, i i say they're like distant cousins of each other they're not they're they're related in some ways but they're two totally you know opposing you know uh two totally opposing views from spielberg but i wanted to ask you though i mean there's to me there's so many amazing moments in this movie what's one or two of your favorite moments I like the uh, I like the action figure scenes. I like that he plays uh, homage to his friend George Lucas and bringing up Boba Fett and bringing up the other Star Wars figures that he has. Um, I really enjoy. I mean, like it just everything in the forest works for me, like everything at that night um, and especially the bike ride. I've never been to Universal, but I'm hoping to get there before they close whatever whatever they decide to close ET. I don't know if they will. I think ET is like their version of it's a small world or something like Probably, that. So yeah. I don't know that they'll ever close it. But uh I just 
like that sense of these kids going off and having this like magical adventure with this alien that becomes their friend um, is just something that really still works for me. And there's a lot of quiet in this film. Like there's a lot of, I mean, that for like, you really, you get Elliot and ET are really connected by like minute 15 Mm -hmm. and the government doesn't really show up until like minute 70. There's a, there's a good amount of time in there, like 50 minutes worth of just like explanation and exploring what this relationship is going to be between Mm -hmm. Elliot and ET. And I really appreciated those quiet moments. I don't know if you get that. Like, again, like I'm thinking about it through today's modern context. And I feel like they wouldn't let that relationship marinate as much. Maybe not. I don't know, but it just seems like you get to really get that empathy as an audience, not just within like the written script, but as an audience, you're feeling empathetic for this relationship between these two. Cause you want them to work out. It's almost like in a weird way, kind of like its own little rom-com here. Like we want, we want these two to be together in the end. Uh, we want them to be able to figure it out. It's, it, you know, when I watch the, the first 15, 20 minutes of the movie, I'm like, it's kind of a, it's kind of an interesting parallel to jaws where you don't see ET right away, but you know, something's lurking, but there's so much more magical um, happenings going on. So instead of like intense fear that you're feeling of knowing the unknown, there's the sort of wonder that you're feeling with the unknown in this movie. And I think uh, one of my favorite moments is with the, uh, with the baseball when, you know, he throws it in the garage and it comes right back out to him. And, you know, that's something where, you know, Spielberg, when he hits the right notes in Jaws, that would, you know, spell terror. And this movie, it spells sort of magic and wonder. And when you see that through, you know, Elliot's eyes and everything. And I love, I love the whole Halloween portion. You know, it's interesting when I watch this, I feel like Spielberg must have somehow wanted this to be, you know, a holiday movie. I don't know if he wanted it connected to Halloween or maybe something that was shown at Thanksgiving every year. You know, I think this could have easily been one of those annual movies. I don't think it ever quite caught on that way as big of a hit as it was, but um, it, it, it does sort of have that feel to it. And then, I mean, I, I've got to go along too, like you said, with the um, the two moon jump scenes. Mm. And I mean, there's a reason why it's the symbol of Amblin, um, because I think it just the silhouette of E.T. and Elliot on the bike, you know, against the moon. I mean, that symbolizes kind of all that we feel about Spielberg and his body of work and how he brings out the childlike wonder in all of us. And I don't know, I just think that last half hour of the movie as soon as we know that et is alive again and they break loose from the government agency and all of the friends on the bikes join in and you start with that john williams score and then when their bikes take off to me that is like that's what the movies can do that no other genre can do there's something about that moment that is so perfect from that moment up until the very end of the movie that's like perfect cinema for me i don't know what it is it's the right it's the right director with the right you know person scoring with the right characters it just all works in that wonderful package and the the colors that they're able to bring out because they had a great dp as well on this and to be able to like bring that all together i i totally agree with you it's it's a wonderful end to a movie. And this one won John Williams an Oscar, right? It did. It did. I, I mean, the movie was nominated for nine Oscars. Um, 
and it won four. And so, yeah, John Williams won for score. It won for the sound effects, which this movie has incredible sound too. just the incredible and sound effects, editing and best visual effects. Um, so uh, Spielberg was nominated for best director. Uh, it's funny. Uh, the movie that won Best Picture that year in 1982 was Gandhi. And Richard Attenborough, who was the director of that movie, was quoted as saying, even I would have voted for E.T. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we know that uh, the Oscars, I could get on a tirade about that again, uh, as I always do. But, but no, I think that, uh, do you want to talk about, I mean, you mentioned the, the cinema of it, the perfect cinema nature of it, but do you want to go into talking about the score? Oh yeah, I I I mentioned this I think during our Close Encounters episode. This is my favorite score I think of John Williams and I know that's hard to say because I love the Raiders score. I love, you know, I think his Superman score is great. I think Schindler's List is beautiful. Um but no, there is something about this score that um whenever I hear it done, I went to I went with our friends Vanessa B to our local um, Illinois Symphony Orchestra, and they did the music of um, John Williams um, one night. And you sat and you heard these great, great scores, and then they get to the ET score, and it just—I don't know. There's something about it that just it captures it, it captures this childlike innocence. It captures you know the mystery of the unknown, and he captures that all in just this wonderful mix of music that he does. And I, from the, and then, you know, at the very end, this incredible symphonic orchestral stuff as the um, spaceship is going off, you know, again, as ET leaves and you know, that, you know, this family has been healed and everything. It just, I don't know what it does to me, but there's just something amazing when you see it, it's the perfect imagery with the perfect scoring up against it. Yeah. And you know, it's not one of those scores that like, cause John Williams does a great job at pounding you with scores, like pounding you with a wall of sound. I mean, think about like the beginning of Superman, the beginning, the Imperial March, the the theme for Star Wars. So many of those, even Raiders to a certain extent has such like a heavy brass to it. But like, I love that, like there, that he can also do a score like this. And I mean, not a Spielberg piece, but he can also do a score like Harry Potter. Like he can do these scores that are like uh, home alone. Like he could do these scores that are so much more, um, dialed down. Like I, I don't want how do I, musically. How do I even say that? Like just I, like there's an innocence to this that isn't like mm-hmm. it's not bombastic when it doesn't need to be. It's like right. it, it fits the the mold of this movie so well, and he's able to do that. I mean, he's just a genius, and so. Uh, it's just a genius of our time for uh, as far as music is concerned. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I, I mean, it's incredible when you think about this movie and how its budget is, you know, ten and a half million dollars. And its first initial release, it makes, I believe, like three hundred and forty nine million. And then it and this never happens anymore. I mean, it stayed in the theaters it was released in the summer and it stayed in the theaters till February of 83. Wow. And remained in the top 10 movies that whole time. <laughs> and so it was a cultural phenomenon. I mean, ET was everywhere. Um, and uh, its record kind of wouldn't be broken until another Spielberg movie comes along a decade later with Jurassic Park. And so, and then, 
and the, well, and then also a Spielberg produced movie a couple of years later would kind of match it too, which was Back to the Future. So mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's pretty amazing. It, it captured something culturally that you just don't see that often anymore from a movie. And I mean, even if you think about it, like it, it, it saved Reese's Pieces. I mean, too. I mean, the, the what's interesting is Spielberg wanted to do M&Ms. M&Ms said no. So they used Reese's Pieces instead. I mean, it didn't hurt M&Ms any, but, you know, it, it, well, it takes some market forever. share. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but but Reese's Pieces forever will be associated with this movie. Uh-huh. And I think that that's what that's another thing that's remarkable. Yeah. And just again, like. This this film, I think you become aware of this film. Like if you were growing up in the early 90s, like I was, I don't know of a time that I wasn't aware of this film. Like mm-hmm. it seems like back to my memory, like you would get the references to E.T. and of course the attractions at Universal Studios and everything else. And it still continues on. Like it still has a really large legacy along with it and of course last year being the 40th anniversary you got to see a lot of that uh Mm -hmm. and it's been in the news more often now but it just gives this uh freedom for kids to be able to have adventures of their own and it really started that off for like the whole that next decade really Uh oh totally and it's interesting we're we're now going to go into I mean, we'll preview what's coming next or everything, but we're now going to go to Spielberg is kind of, this is sort of the very tail end of his really class minus 1941, uh, his really sort of can do no wrong era. And now he's going to experiment a little bit more coming up and he's going to go into more, he's going to start making adult movies as he says in his, um, in his own words. So uh, that will be interesting, but it's just amazing in this moment in time, this little, you know, alien, you know, captured the hearts of the world. And I still, you know, I'm so glad that there has never been a sequel made to this movie because universal wanted him to make a sequel to this movie. And he said, he spent several months thinking about it. And he finally went to universal and said, I think we made a perfect movie and I don't think we should add anything onto it. And surprisingly universal agreed with him and backed down. Yeah. So imagine that today, yeah. right? <laughs> we'll see though, uh, depending on where the rights are at, uh, when when Mr. Spielberg is no longer with us, we'll see what ends up happening with with ET. People love to IP things to death, but it's it's kind of nice that it's a standalone and that the, yeah. it's just like this one adventure and you know, that you will always know that E.T. will be right here with you, right? And so it's kind of cool um that they get that opportunity. But yeah, I mean, what we got. Indy, we go back to Indy next, mm-hmm. right? And then we jump, so jump we, into color purple. So we, yeah. So we go to the, in, so we go to the, um, we go to the Indy well again next with, um, I, I, I would say sort of a divisive, um, I would uh, say so, yeah. Indy canon. Um, some people love it. Some people hate it. I haven't revisited it in so long. And mm-hmm. I used to say it was my favorite when I was a kid. Cause I think that like, the monkey eyeballs and like all of the stuff, like the grabbing the dude's heart. Like it's just so metal. Right. I mean, like it's so ridiculous and over the top, but uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. And then I've never seen color purple. So that'll be one of another ones of uh, Spielberg's that I've never seen before. So, yeah. So we get to, um, so yeah, we, we do temple of doom and then we go to Spielberg's first adult movie, the color purple, um, which uh, has, a lot of interesting subject matter to talk about and it's the um 
it also brought, you know, two cultural icons, Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey to us. So that's something also um, that we'll get into. So, it, I mean, it's amazing. And then, and then we get into some interesting ones like Empire of the Sun and Always. So um, we, we've got some interesting movies to talk about coming up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, like still rolling through the eighties with Spielberg, but this is a, a great kickoff to, uh, I mean, <laughs> can you imagine just like opening a decade with, Raiders of the Lost Ark and then ET like mm-hmm. just right there. He could just retire and be good, yeah. you know, and the, the movies that he's already brought us, he already has arguably four cultural, like milestone movies mm-hmm. in the, we've now covered seven of his films mm-hmm. and like four of them are like movies that will forever be talked about in mm-hmm. cinema history. That's yeah. wild. And we've got at least five or six more (laughs) down the pike coming up. Oh, I mean, at least like, I mean, you know, like again, he's got some misses that we'll probably, that we'll talk about. He, he maybe, I don't know that they will ever be 1941 style misses again, Mm -hmm. hopefully. I don't think so. Like he's got so many films. I mean, there's a reason he's Steven Spielberg. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about now where we put ET with our rankings here uh would you like me to go first or would you well you already gave away the the farm here i think i did so no spoilers for me so right right now before this episode i had let's see it was it was raiders at number one close encounters at number two um it would have been then jaws at number three um sugarland express at number four duel at number five and then a tier way 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 below 1941 at number six so i'm just going to push them all down one and put et up at number one so okay so i will have et at number one raiders at number two close encounters at number three those are my top three okay it's crazy that jaws is number four because it's such a landmark i know we're talking about rarefied air here well, and um, so for me, Raiders is still going to remain number one. I talked about that last episode. Raiders is mm-hmm. one of those like those films for me that I can just revisit all of the time. To me, it's a perfect film, perfect adventure film. E.T., I think it would put number two, um, and then followed by Jaws at number three. Uh, I had Duel above Close Encounters, which is controversial to uh, the pod, I'm sure. And then Close Encounters uh, and then Sugarland Express. And again, <laughs> 1941, um, which... Guys, it was a bad movie. I'm just going to let you know. Uh, that was not a good movie. Uh, but it, you know, I just, I just can't imagine this guy's career. Like, and this, mm-hmm. the, the longevity of it now that he's still making films to this day, that we're talking about this landmark film that's 41 years old now and still having this kind of an impact and people are still like discovering it and it still brings out a sense of wonder in kids. Like, what better would you want from your art than to be able to have that kind of a, that kind of a runway and like to just constantly inspire that's it's wild. And it still works. I mean, uh, both, both of those, you know, incredible bike moon jump scenes, you know, it's coming and it still works and it still mm-hmm. gets you every time. And the ending still wrecks you every time. Um, So yeah, it, it's, it's pretty amazing that it does that, but yeah, this is a movie. I think that, um, I, I, I think it works better for me as an adult than it did when I watched it as a kid. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. I think you get a lot more of the levels as an adult. Yeah. I think you understand the empathy a bit more. Uh, I, I don't know that I could have put a, a name to that 
like kind of connection and feeling that they had between the two of them other than like, Oh yeah, that was his buddy. But like, there's a lot more there than just some kind of kinship. Like there's almost like they're soulmate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like, and it's what Elliot needed at that time because he was going through a lot in his family life. And that's established with this, you know, like the, the mom who was played wonderfully and um, you, you feel a sense of heartache for her as well. I mean, it's just all of it. it. It's that like continuing to go back to those human stories that we talked about definitely like, you know, we didn't talk a lot during the the episode proper about the connections to the other films, but clearly the connections here are that Spielberg does such a good job of telling a human story, telling the stories of extraordinary events through ordinary people. people. Yeah. And ordinary people. And then also uh, talk about like the idea of horizon lines and cinematic horizons. I mean, this, film is just shot so beautifully and like it it takes a lot of i think um what he has learned and what he's done in other films and just really is able to put that into this film and the where they shot it at i mean from everything is just beautiful and it it, it provides uh a setting for that sense of wonder too yeah well and you know mentioning the horizons and everything i mean just when the you know when the government men come in and you see the cars coming in over the horizon you know there's there's so many ways that he creatively uses that and certainly the iconic moon scene Mm -hmm. you know it's it's incredible and you know yeah i can't i can't say enough about et it's so it's so good mm -hmm, it's just a it's a milestone so i mean that's what we have um right now but um we've got some interesting conversations coming up i think um before the end of the year we're going to try and get you temple of doom fairly quickly um and then uh we've got the musical version of the color purple coming out on christmas day so i think that we're gonna try and do um an episode on the 1985 film of the color purple just in time for that Mm -hmm. um and um i think i think that'll be a good way to end out the year and then kick off 2024 with empire of the sun (laughs) which is interesting, but um, that'll be, that'll be interesting. We've got some good stuff coming up. Christian Bale's uh, intro to film. Although I would say that newsies did more for his career than empire of the sun. Right. I don't think he would say that. I'm positive. He would not say that, but no, it, uh, it's been fun going through these. I can't believe we're on number seven going into number eight now already. Absolutely. Almost hit our, uh, our first double digits of Spielberg films. Yeah. Yeah, so we're almost, I mean, we still got quite a bit of the 80s to go, but then, um, man, when we get to the 90s, there's going to be a lot to talk about. Yeah. So, so yeah, so uh, Craig, as we uh, sort of get um, close to wrapping up here, what do you have coming up on your other shows on Beyond the Mouse and Shrinking? That is, those are great questions. We've had some really good conversations on Beyond the Mouse. We spoke to Becky Klein from the Walt Disney Archives, which was really fun. About <laughs> Well, I almost made it the whole podcast without coughing. Uh, with uh, about the Disney 100, the exhibition in Chicago. And then we also talked to Disney legend Don Hahn again about his work with the Walt Disney Family Museum and bringing Walt Disney Christmas with Walt Disney to Disney Plus as well. And so that's been really cool to um, can keep on those. And then uh, over on Peanut Butter and Biscuits or PB&B Shrinks, we're continuing to go through the shrinking uh, show we're actually only on episode two at the moment but we're hoping to get through the first couple of episodes maybe to the fourth episode before the end of the year over on that show too how about you on classics uh i think it will be i th- well i've got all my december um coming up i we're um we're doing um 
well, when this episode releases, you'll hear um, my episode that I did with Kevin Hart and Jacqueline Kieser on Holiday Inn um, to coincide with the production they are doing here at the uh, Hoagland Center for the Arts. So um, that will be great. And then um, also talk to my friend Christian Blavelt from IndieWire talking about Going My Way, which is not necessarily a Christmas movie. There is some holiday stuff in it, um, but and Bing Crosby is in it. Um, so that there's an interesting conversation. And then my friend Ben Burke from the Hollywood Babylonians podcast is joining me to talk about The Man Who Came to Dinner, um, which has a lot of Christmas in it. Um, and it's a show that I'm familiar with. So uh, we'll get into that a little bit. Brandon was the star. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then our friend B. Bonner from um, NPR Illinois is going to be joining me to uh, interview um, author and historian Donald Bogle, who's written an amazing new book about Lena Horne. So there's a lot of fun stuff coming up in December for classics. That is so awesome. I'm excited to hear all of it, friend, and uh, to kind of end out the year with all these great films and different TV shows we're watching and everything else. I I haven't caught up on like regular tv for a while i feel like i i'm so far behind in things and you know in this new like streaming environment like if you miss a show by like a week or two it's just like not talked about anymore so i feel like i'm completely out on alert i haven't watched like much of loki at all Mm. um i'm finally trying to catch up to survivor i watched a few episodes the other Mm -hmm. day trying to catch up to you on Survivor. I got like other shows that people have recommended to me and told me are great. I've heard that Lessons in Chemistry is pretty great mm-hmm. over on Apple. Like there's all these things and there's just not enough time to watch any of it. Yeah. If you are not watching the Gilded Age on Max, um, it's if you were a fan of Downton Abbey, this is it's in, it's in the same universe as Downton Abbey, but it's what was going on over here in America during that time. So the, it's and it's got every Broadway star under the sun because they shoot it in New York and they use theater actors. And so like all of a sudden you turn around and, Ooh, there's Audra McDonald. There's Nathan Lane. They all show up. So um, watch that. It's a great show. So watch that. And then also, um, you know, to go along with peanut butter and biscuits, Juno temple is wonderful in the new season of Fargo. So, so much TV. Yeah. Too, way too much. And then you're supposed to be watching all these Christmas movies too. So yeah. we got a lot of watching to do. Uh, and then, but the next one, dear listeners, if you're watching along with us, you get to go back to Indiana Jones and actually back to before Raiders of the Lost Ark in a interesting prequel of sorts. So you get to chat all things Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom on the next Cinematic no, Horizons. Nothing says holiday warmth like Temple of Doom. That's right. So uh, you got that to it really look forward rips to. the heart out of the holidays. Absolutely. You have got that to look forward to. So as we wrap this episode up on ET for Cinematic Horizons, I am Brandon. And I'm Craig. And as always, go out and find your horizon lines.